Hi, I'm Rich Wynn. And I'm Rebecca Nixon. And this is the, the PropTech, PropTech Growth, Growth Podcast. Podcast. Every episode, we interview an expert in the PropTech startup space, gathering their advice and expertise to help you run a successful PropTech business. I'm the Portable PropTech CMO, and I help PropTech startups build and scale their commercial growth strategy. I'm Rich from Richwind Consultancy. I specialize in operations, sales, and process, helping fintechs and PropTech companies to grow. Shall we quickly start with just a brief intro on you, Maria? Yeah, of course. I'm doing a whole load of portfolio things, which is really interesting and not where I expected to be. So I run my own consultancy, which is called Digital Cat. And I work with mortgage lenders predominantly, so banks and building societies and mortgage technology firms and help them to digitize their mortgage onboarding process and make their customer and user experience much better. So that's really cool because I get to do a lot of the stuff that I did at Atom Bank and put it into other lenders and other intermediary facing firms. And I also sit on the board of United Trust Bank as a non-exec director. So UTB are a savings bank and they do lending, mainly specialists. So we do things like development finance, asset finance, second charges. We do a bit of residential lending, that kind of thing as well. So that's nice. So I sit on the board there as a non-exec. And then I do some board advisory work for a whole number of very cool startups, including people like Cordute, who are the UK's first distributed ledger technology solution for property. And I've got a firm in New York that I work with called Plotify and things like FinTech and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And finally, I chair the Home Buying and Silent Technology Group, which is a collaboration group between government, industry, and trade bodies and associations trying to make the home buying and selling process better than it is today. Wow, that's really impressive. I think when I look at your portfolio career, Maria, I'm looking at what I hope to be at some point soon, my future career. So Mm -hmm. you're definitely an inspiration for people like me who are just at the beginning of that process. PropTech is really an exciting place at the moment. I feel it's probably two or three years at least behind FinTech, which gives it not a Wild West feel. But uh, you can take what you've learned from fintech and put it into PropTech. That's where I am at the moment. So I wanted to start reasonably broad today and thought that we could talk about, in the context of coming from fintech and PropTech spaces ourselves, I think actually all three of us have worked across both of those areas. I'd really like to know, in your opinion, Maria, what are the fundamental keys to growing a successful tech business? So I got to start the UK's first digital bank because I got to design the UK's first digital mortgage. And it's one of those weird things that you never get the chance to do stuff like that in your life ever. Nobody ever starts a bank because why would you? And crazy people with lots of lots of stress and big money and big responsibility. But to design a brand new lender and design it from scratch, like overwhelmingly ridiculous, like such a stupid thing, crazy thing to do. But the most exhilarating thing that I've ever done in my life, I guess the reason that we were successful and I've been able to take that into other companies is being absolutely relentless about the thing that you're trying to do and what the difference is that you're trying to make, whether that is building a new proposition or a new customer experience or disrupting something because you think it's broken and you think you can do it better. But you have to be absolutely like tunnel visioned about the thing that it is that you're trying to do and not be swayed by external influences or self-doubt or any of those things. And then once you've nailed what it is that you're to do, just get really about the customer and or the user experience. And the technology in and of itself should almost be invisible to what's going on. 
and the technology should be there to provide all of that foundation and all of the heavy lifting and all the manual process and make it really data-driven and API-led and real-time and all those things that technology does well. But actually, the technology is only as good as the experience that you design in the first place. So yeah, get really obsessed about what that journey looks like and find the technology that makes that kind of come to life and sing for you. Right. So what we're hearing here is a really strong message about how growth and success comes from having a very clear value proposition and being like a dog with a bone, absolutely unable to be distracted by anything else and fully focused on that. Would you say that's an accurate representation of your being? Absolutely. And, you know, all successful companies will tell you that somebody has what sounds like maybe a good idea and, you know, that you'll find some nice technology that can make the world change. But actually the people who deliver all that are the people and the customers and the people who come on and actually use it and live it and breathe it. So being values led and having a really clear vision and a really clear purpose that everybody coalesces around and has got really excited by and really interested in is like absolutely key to doing it. You need everybody to be really obsessed about it in order to get the same outcome. So you talk about vision and people and getting the people who are working on that vision bought into it, but also the customers bought into it as well. So everyone's pulling in the same direction. That's such a fine balance though, because yeah, you can do loads of stuff with customers really early and their reference, their kind of framework is based on what they already know and what their existing pain points or something that they have aspirations. Like in terms of banking, like this is really painful. I want to be able to do it on my phone. I want it to be really easy. But the, sometimes the customer doesn't know what they don't know and they don't know that the solution they needed is something that someone hasn't thought of yet. So you have to be brave as well and not be scared to put stuff in front of people and for them to say, yeah, that's awful. It doesn't work. Or can you do it this way? And failing fast and learning those lessons really quickly are really important. But having customers in there right at the beginning is hugely valuable. So there's a dichotomy there, a tension between your vision of what you're delivering and where the customer is at in their current experience and what their expectation is. You're trying to bridge the gap, not just between where they're at in terms of getting to what they expect as a level of service, but also getting them to where your vision is because you might have something they've never even thought of before that you would like to deliver. And if you show them that, they might be like, oh, okay, maybe I wasn't actually shooting high enough. Yeah, absolutely. And Atom's a really great example of that. So when we were prototyping different versions of the app and the customer insight tools we had were like absolutely amazing. So we had customers who were testing on their phones when we just had wireframes and stuff, but they agreed to let us record not just what their responses were, but we actually videoed them on their phones while they were doing it. So you literally could see people's expressions and when they were smiling, when they were frowning, when you could see they were getting really frustrated because they were expecting that they would swipe in a certain direction because that's their natural expectation and we designed it that it went up instead and being able to see that on a customer's face even though they probably wouldn't even have registered it consciously you could see it in their body language and in their expression and in the way that they were trying to interact let's say being brave and not being scared to try things but to be able to really get real insight from your customers and at that kind of level of granularity where you are 
asking them not just what it felt like, but how they actually felt during the process and what made them happy, what made them sad, what made them frustrated, where they got really angry about something. All of those emotions are like a human and they're finding ways to help the customer through that as part of your solution. That's really interesting. I worked in a lot of different tech businesses and very rarely do I hear people speaking with such passion and authority about the emotional relationship that the user has with the platform that you're looking to deliver. What is it about you that's taking you to this different place? Because everyone I've worked with has been very much on the quantitative, data-driven side, and that's where my brain goes. That's how I operate. But that emotional intelligence and empathy, what got you there? Yeah, I guess that I said at the beginning about where I am now in my career, I actually don't come from a tech background, which is the most bizarre thing to say when I'm helping companies to design new technology systems and plug systems together. My background is actually all in customer service and customer experience. I started my career working in contact centers. I used to work for British Airways back in the 90s when they were one of the biggest global brands for customer experience, customer insight, customer excellence, like world leading brand. And I moved from traveling to utilities, which is one extreme to the other when utilities were having a really tough time about how poor the customer experience was and having to do lots of troubleshooting and redesigning and engaging with regulators and with customers on how to make that better. And I fell into financial services with a lot of people in the industry did in 2006. But then what I did was customer facing and I've stayed that way. And I get really passionate about tech and what tech can do to enable an experience and how it bridges that gap between what a business want and what a business needs to function really well, to have good target operating model, to be really efficient and all the things that make you financially successful and make your company valuable. And like you say, that human bit, because my background is all people and you're seeing it so much more in tech companies now, the emotional intelligence, empathy, when you start looking, people are, are recruiting the skills that they're looking for. There's so much more need of that. And it, it feeds into things like diversity as well. It's sometimes really hard being one of the few women in fintech because there's not a huge amount of it, especially not women who are my age and who look like me and who sound like me. Not many of us from the Northeast. And it's breaking that mold and breaking the way we think about customer experience and how we use technology. We need more of that. We need more diversity of thought. When I was a broker, it was an experience and it was also an education for people because it was very new. And so as a broker, obviously you're there to advise and educate, whether it's insurance or the mortgage, I would get a call because they've got their offer within the app. And it's, Rich, I've got the offer. I was like, yeah, no, it's brilliant, isn't it? And they've got it all there and they don't need to print it out and sign it and fax it. It's just there. And it, it was a completely new thing. And I feel that the younger generations now want that or expect that. And I think Atom was obviously at the time was revolutionary. And I think even more so now, again, I don't know now what exactly they're doing because I've been out of that space for about five years. But I just think that that's something so good about that. And it is all about UX and UI. And that's why I think PropTech can take a lot from FinTech. Because actually, when you look at some of the companies out there at the moment in PropTech, who are looking to make that conveyancing piece better and have something all in one place, it's got everything there already from the seller to the buyer. And actually, that's pretty much what Atom were doing 
whenever that was first launched. I've mentioned it before, and it's easy for me to sit here and say, when I was a founder, I probably fell into the same trap. Your technology is great, but it's got to make money. You've got to run a business. You have to have customers, whether that's B2B and B2C. And if you don't have that right experience, then they're not going to come back or they're just not going to buy from you in the first place. It, it is something that's really key when running a business that your consumers are happy. Because if they're not, there's so much choice now, they'll just go elsewhere. Absolutely agree. And experience is huge now, isn't it? And generationally, but especially post-pandemic, as more and more people have become so used to being able to do things online and to be able to have instant access to anything that they need to do on a mobile device. And I think the fastest growing user group of mobile devices in the last 10 years are over 65s. I think at the beginning of the last decade, around 2010, something like 9% of over 65s had a smartphone. And I think at the end of 2020, it was something like 90%. It was just exponential growth. And then that'll only have grown during the pandemic. But the amount of things that people do on their phone now, you're absolutely right. You just expect it to be there. And you don't think about the technology and how it works. If you go on and order something online or you go on and search for something or you want to find what to watch next or want to listen next, that experience is just delivered. And it's delivered in a way that feels very human and very natural. And Atom was very much designed that way. It was designed to be customer obsessed. And I remember the first time the broker rang us where the mortgage offer had arrived in the customer's app. And this was really early stage. We'd done a really small number of beta test cases with one broker just to make sure everything actually got through the pipe. And then we opened it up. And I remember the first broker ringing me to say the customer had had the mortgage offer in less than 20 minutes. And they were like, is this a real offer? Do I need to do anything else? And they were like almost testing that it worked. And I remember we got to the point where we could get mortgage application to mortgage offer in 14 seconds. And that just blew up online. Don't get me wrong, it's not easy to do, but it's not impossible, obviously, either. But the noise that I created and the feel-good factor from the customer and the broker and everybody involved to say, wow, it felt amazing. And it just had such a ripple effect. I wish I could bottle that and do it for everyone. It's just such a great feeling. So when you talk about delivering a really amazing experience for the customer, and having that wow moment, are there fintechs or prop techs or you know, startups that you look at and go, that examples of excellence spring to mind? Yes, prop tech's so hard. And there are so many people that are doing amazing things. There's lots of companies who are involved with the home buying and selling group that volunteer and give huge amounts of time to try and help us make the process better. And there's no getting away from the home buying and selling process is really broken and has been for a long time. And the customer experience is horrific. I was actually at a conference last week where somebody had said to me, oh, it's not broken enough. And I was like, 85% of people say that buying a house is stressful. One in four said it made them really emotional, like to the point of tears, which is pretty sad. But one in eight actually said it made their mental health worse. And I was like, how bad does a process have to be before we go, actually, this is really broken, we should fix it. So yeah, there's a lot going on in PropTech just now. And there's a lot of companies who are working really hard to fix it. I'm also really fortunate that I get to do a bit of mentoring for Geovation, which is an accelerator program. I work with the Geospatial Commission and get to play with bits of data. And I'm sure Rich will know some of the firms who've come out of that as well like inventory base. It's one of the biggest challenges for all of those is you've got some amazing people, really clever, really bright, lots of great ideas, really passionate about what they're trying to deliver. We actually have a huge problem with data in property. And that's because a lot of the source data that we would need access to make 
the technology work really well and to hang solutions together and to give us that insight. Actually, a lot of that data doesn't exist in a digital format and certainly not in the way that you would talk about the national data strategy as in data being fair and which means findable, accessible, interoperable and reusable. A lot of property data like that doesn't exist right now. So what you're seeing is firms like Inventory Base, like TM Group, there's lots of them who are all working really hard to try and work with the data that we've got and put services around it to make it better. Like almost the connectivity that the industry needs to even just be able to share data in a way that's safe. So if you think in banking, those things are already there. If I wanted to ping Rich some money, like my bank doesn't have to connect directly to Rich's bank. We all connect to the SWIFT network and the payments are standardized and it has standardized messaging and everybody has the same security and that just goes. You don't have to worry about it or think about it. We don't have that for properties. Code have built that using distributed ledger, which is amazing. And as that gets traction, that would be great. But it still doesn't solve it. We've got a big hurdle to get over in terms of property data and being able to use data well. Yeah, I remember during my time in fintech watching that, particularly with regards to things like KYC and AML, that all becoming standardized and seeing businesses take things that previously weren't even really considered data points and collating those and sharing those in meaningful ways. I think what we've discovered, particularly when it comes to property, is the number of data points when it comes to an individual property. You can take this house, for example. It's been here for hundreds of years. There are so many data points relating to this house, some of which are accessible, some of which are only on paper, and some of which just you would only know after literally living here. Things that people really ought to know before they buy a property, getting that information collated and meaningful information as well. When we think about things like sustainability and houses that are energy efficient and how we make different buildings more energy efficient, I think there's a huge amount of data that needs to be collated and used to make things better, whether it's the buying process or any number of other initiatives, do you feel that the drive is there to push for that? And if so, where do you feel that's coming from? Yeah, that's a really great question. I guess where FinTech had almost that eureka moment was the whole load of stuff all came together around standardization. So standardization for things like payments, central banks agreeing what international standards look like, even in mortgages. So you have European Mortgage Credit Directive and standardization around how we did things like ESIS and how we displayed interest rates and calculations and all that kind of stuff. And then we had open banking and open banking was mandated on the back of the competition market authority research to say customers could have a better experience and could have access to more products and different options in fintech if this banking data was made available in more of a standardized way. And there was a whole structure put around that and all of those things around a trust framework, around common data dictionaries, around technology and API specifications, common kind of schemas. And those things were mandated and that framework was put in place. And we've been working really hard on the home buying and selling group since last summer to create that for property. So we do now have a property data trust framework that my little army of volunteers have been working on and contributing to. They've created a whole repository of JSON schemas and API specifications, all of which are open source and free on GitHub. And money where their mouth is, they've connected their own systems together to do two proof of concept tests to show that 
having upfront information, creating this information digitally at the point that a customer lists their property for sale, sharing that data in real time with all of the people in the transaction. So whether that's the seller's conveyancer, potentially a mortgage lender, mortgage broker, with the buyer and with the buyer's conveyancer, and obviously with the estate agent, that all of those things can be shared in real time. And it has a transformational impact on everybody's experience. So we did two proof of concepts, which we delivered earlier this year. And that bunch of volunteers are about to go into beta testing and put this in a production environment live and put real customers and real transactions through it. One of the challenges we're going to have is obviously we're heading into a bit of an economic downturn and transaction volumes are not looking great, which is going to be a challenge in itself. But there's a big thing about industry adoption and there's a lot of the firms who have a lot of challenges around legacy platforms. We've got trading standards who've mandated bits of the upfront information, but not all of it yet. Actually making those changes in systems is just really painful for some people. And the whole concept of having something that is digital, real-time API-led, a proper data-driven experience, it's an alien concept to lots of people in the industry. So right now, there's lots of hearts and minds that need to be won before we can get the level of industry adoption. You need to get past that tipping point of, actually, this works. And everybody has that aha moment of, why didn't we do this years ago? Because while all of that's happening, we are working with the government department. So we work really closely with the land registry, with the geospatial commission, et cetera, on when and how they can align their roadmaps to make the data available. And so land registry published their digital strategy, 22 plus, which is great. We just need to find out when and how that work's going to be funded and whether or not they'll have the resource to deliver it. But then there's other parts like you say, that are still very much on paper that just don't even exist in an electronic format yet, whether that's information on leases. We've got some very cool prop techs who are trying to use OCR to try and help us get over that. But there's a huge amount of that, things like energy performance certificates, council tax banding, lots of stuff that exists on the website that actually is not available in the data format yet. So there's definitely desire. There are lots of people working really hard on it, but we've got a long way to go. And I guess if I had one request on the back of this, it would be, can people please come and get involved and help? Because the more of us jump on it, the quicker and easier we'll get there. That's good. And I think with anything, the industry adoption, and I saw it in mortgages, obviously my particular company, Hooch, was born out of frustration at the mortgage process and how long it took and duplication and all that sort of stuff that you'd expect. And it just takes a few people to start doing that and then the rest will follow. And I think, again, it's harder with the bigger companies, the bigger state agents, we all know they have legacy systems. And so for them to put something like this in place is a lot more difficult. And again, if they start to do it and people are going through quicker with them because they have that X market share or whatever, you're going to see a shift because again, it comes to user experience and with some of the smaller agents, they are going to fall over in the current climate and that's where if you could get a big state agent on board then they would just sweep up their market share would just grow and grow but takes one in a hundred after two years and 500k to get one of these estate agents to actually do it but when they do it does make a big difference and again in fintech we've seen that yeah it would be great to speed it up funnily enough i heard it was pwc managed to get a transaction through from start to finish by purchasing a property in eight minutes. And obviously there was a few things probably skipped and regulations ignored, but it can be done. I'm not saying same day or anything like that, but we could look at a sort of two week section where you 
say, yes, I'm going to buy it. And then it completes in two weeks. I think that would be the, the ideal, the utopia that people should aim for realistically, looking at all the parties involved with the mortgages and the conveyances and everybody else. I think that would be certainly my utopia to get it to that point. Yeah, so I think so many different forces at play, isn't there? Part of it is that the customer has no choice, like the process is the process right now, and it's not like you can go anywhere else and get a different experience. Everybody's got the same challenge, so that's not incredibly helpful. We're not great at telling customers why it's so bad, and the fact is that if we did move to digital upfront information and everybody connected their systems, either peer-to-peer using the framework or via somebody like CoreJute, that actually a huge amount of all these problems would go away if the customers don't know that that, so there's the kind of that pull factor almost doesn't exist right now because nobody knows that needs to be the pull. But you're absolutely right as well that for the users in the industry, it's not a great process for most of the industry either. We've got lots of stress on the front line. We've got really high turnover having stuff take 24, 26 weeks to get from accepting a property to completion is not great. It's not great for the estate agent. It's not great for the mortgage broker. It's not great for the customers. And it's not good for lenders either. Whatever we get the number down to, it's actually around giving people control and transparency and trust and confidence that when I put an offer in on a property, I do know everything that I need to know and I'm making a really informed decision that I feel confident and happy about, that I've gone into it with as much information as I need. And when I do put that offer in and that offer's accepted, I have control over when and how I complete and exchange and what day I can move. And all the things that right now you have no control over. And I sold my own house over the summer and I've had a horrific experience. And given I've worked in the industry since 2006, the person who bought mine was a first-time buyer and the house that I sold was a Bob standard built in 1994 bed detached house on a freehold like on paper the simplest thing that you can imagine and it was still awful and it still took five months and I was just tearing my own hair out so it given customers control and trust and confidence and transparency and whether that needs to be that I can move in two weeks if I want to but actually no I don't need to move for a month because I'm moving around school days and new jobs but the customer having the choice to decide that and to know what their options are right now they don't so that would just be a phenomenal change. And there's nothing that stops us from getting there. And mortgage offers are designed that they have a 14-day cooling off period to give customers that kind of time to change their mind. It's a big financial commitment. You need to make really sure. So the 14 days is in there to protect the customer. And if we get to be able to exchange in 15 days, then why would you not? Yeah, I think something you touched on there, we've talked to I think a few people about shortening the time the conveyancing time is too long it's too stressful but the stress of it often gets linked to the time frame and you've just linked it actually to okay the time frame is an element of it but actually the real problem is lack of control and lack of transparency because actually when I bought this house we had it turned around quite quickly. We were first time buyers and the seller had no chain, but it was still the most stressful thing either of us has ever done in our lives. And we're both startup founders. So you've got 35 year old professionals who, who are like, I never want to buy a house again. And I think if we'd known that it's going to take three, four, five, even six months because this and this has to happen. You can then manage your expectations and your stress level and you can work around it. If you've got other options that you know you can pursue, then you can do that. But when there's just a 
black hole called conveyancing (laughs) and you don't even know what that means because you've never done it before it's a lot to handle emotionally and you're talking about having the empathy to really remove that pain and remove that stress and remove that mental health burden from people and as a society we're becoming more and more aware of how certain life events and activities have a huge mental health tax on the public and if we can work together to remove one of those I think that would actually have a really big social impact is that the sort of thing that makes you get up in the morning because I get the sense that you're inspired by that yeah and if I took the analogy of Acton Bank that doing a mortgage application used to feel a bit like that black hole and that it was quite opaque it used to take three four weeks to get a mortgage offer and once the customer had submitted all their paperwork it went into something and they had no idea what was going on behind the scenes because you don't know how underwriting works or what the lender's doing to check your credit score and do all the fraud checks and check your ID and addresses and what documents and what are they looking at on the bank statements and what does all this mean? And now it's really transparent. It's almost real time. Lots of mortgage lenders can do what Afton Bank did and do same day, next day offers. And even where it takes 14, 15 days, there's much more transparency during the process and there's much more engagement with the customer and the broker telling you what's happening and what it is that they're working on and how long that's going to take and why they're doing that. So when you apply that to not just convincing to the whole end-to-end process, we've got two problems. One, that we've got multiple black holes where information disappears, but also right now the process is completely backside forward in that all of the things that you needed to know before you bought that house and before you fell in love with it are all the things that you currently find out after you've got your mortgage offer and the conveyancer does their bit of work, which is too late for you and too late for the lender and too late for everybody. And it's the reason that transactions fall through. It's the reason that we find things out late in the process that then cause stress and anxiety. And all of those things, like actually pulling all of those things right to the front has a huge impact, but really helps sellers to be able to get in a good place to be seller ready first as well because the amount of transactions that then end up either taking long or getting complicated or end up with having to have lots and lots of post-valuation queries or negotiations about something that you didn't know was happening and therefore you need to talk about price or remediation or whatever if the seller knew all of those things at the beginning they could be ready for all of that and the buyer would know before they went into that and you can have all of those conversations up front so again it's about giving people absolutely control and transparency but giving people the tools to be able to have really good honest authentic conversations and being able to get stuff really early whereas at the moment let's say the process is absolutely back to front so just to loop back to something you said earlier around women in fintech and prop tech at the, I don't know, the top level or medium level or, or wherever, since I've been in the prop tech sector, obviously I've met and spoken to some great women, obviously Rebecca's great and uh, Helen Turner at Coho, absolutely amazing. Sean having uh, inventory base, like again, she's the engine that drives that company and it's really good to see. Why do you think it is that? There are so many men compared to women than other industries, not necessarily in tech, but just in this sort of space that we're all working at the moment. Yeah, I've lived with this for a long time. Let's say I joined financial services in 2006. And back then, the number of women who were executives in the mortgage world were like tiny. And I remember going to my first lot of mortgage events, industry awards and stuff. 
and there would be less than 10% of the attendees would be female and the number of senior people around were like minuscule. It was really heartbreaking. So we've come on a lot. We have both financial services and property have historically and long-term held by men. They've been very male-dominated industries. You've got lots of people who've got really long tenure. And while those things are changing kind of frontline and up towards that middle management bit, you've got much more diversity frontline. You go into estate agents and stuff now and it looks and feels very different. Same with branch networks, et cetera. But then when you get up to the executive and board level that, you know, that we've not had enough time yet for that to really push through. And also maybe we need to work a little bit harder at that. So there's a lot of women who get to certain levels within our industry who then move sideways or move to other places because it's really hard to make that final step into either executive room or boardroom. So maybe there's a bit of work to do there as well, but just diversity across the board. You can see that the companies who do diversity well perform better and that's absolutely proven, like data analytically proven that they have better performance, but tend to have much higher customer scores. They tend to have that higher internal engagement. They tend to do better things like reviews and all of that kind of stuff. And it just does have a big impact on how organizations feel and perform and it's so much more important now for you know, people who are coming into the workplace it's so much more values driven people are looking for more purpose out of work you have much more people now who have portfolio careers like i do and people coming out of university who are something slash something else that don't just commit to one particular type of work or one company and will do multiple roles and so yeah i think all of that is definitely changing but we definitely could do with more women around the exec table and definitely in the boardroom. And from a founder's perspective, again, I don't have any idea what the stats are if we put prop tech and fintech, but again, predominantly when you see founders getting VC money, for example, or might be a woman there, but there's two men next to her. I haven't seen one woman by herself as a real leader in this is our business, or I couldn't name you a prop tech business where it was just one woman who'd founded it and was pushing everything forward. Again, I might be wrong on that. What would you say to women who are looking to do that? What would you say to them? No, you're absolutely right. I think, and there are some really scary stats out there about the tiny amounts of investment that go to female founders generally, and even more so in females in tech. I think the number is something like, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but like three, four percent of all funding goes to women. And I think it's something like one percent of all funding goes to non-white, regardless of gender. And again, I remember um, seeing Roxana at Blend Network, who is a prop tech founder. And I remember seeing her talk at an event about just how challenging it was to raise that initial funding. And now that they have a phenomenal business and it's gone on to prove that women like her and me and Rebecca absolutely can run really successful companies and are in there. So I guess where I've been really blessed in my career is that actually the people who opened those doors for me and who mentored me were men who were in very senior positions and held the keys to the door in that they could introduce me to people, they would advocate for me, and they would almost smooth that conversation before I even got in the room so that you got in there with a level of credibility already because you were being backed by somebody. So my advice to anybody who's starting up a business is get a mentor, find somebody who can help you open those doors, 
been mega confident and you said yourself you hear people like me talk and I'm really really passionate about what I do be that be authentic be genuine be yourself be passionate about the thing that you're doing people will buy into you as a person and when they believe in what you're trying to do the investment will come and network really well there are lots of people out there like Roxana who have done it and are really happy to share their stories and share their support networks and share the things that worked well for them that's great I'm not having to go to VCs because we all need them and it's just a sort of interesting discussion with somebody who is in your position to look back and I was going to touch on sort of network and is there anything you would say around how to start building a network? So because I'd had quite external facing walls when I worked in banking, I had quite a big industry network anyway. But a lot of that is around taking the time to actually build relationships and a lot of what we do is quite superficial. You go to networking events, have the same kind of, yeah, nothing conversation. But actually, when you take the time to really get invested in somebody's life and, and talk to them about their family and what their passions are outside of work, and I'm a big football fan and the universal language always goes down well, but it's that kind of thing, right? You actually have to really take the time to invest and get to know people. So if you're going to go and do networking stuff, then yeah, don't treat it as a tick box. Like actually find the people that you want and spend some kind of real quality time with them. But choose your mentors well. I've got two mentors. I have one who is my own goal person and the one that I go to when I'm, I'm having an emotional moment or I'm struggling for confidence or self-belief or just need a bit of guidance or need a bit of big enough or whatever and then I've got somebody who's absolutely like my career industry mentor who's really well connected and will introduce me to people and will help me manage a relationship or manage politics around situations that kind of thing but I do a lot on LinkedIn and again when I'm on LinkedIn people know it's me I talk about the stuff that I'm really passionate about. I talk about the stuff I'm genuinely interested in. I'm very authentic. And I don't know how much of that is female and Geordie and half Spanish. And where my heart on my sleeve and couldn't win a game of poker if I tried. Because everything that I see and feel is literally written on my face. And I tend to be that person. And I think that's important as well, just to be yourself when you're out there. And a moment when it really hit me, just how good my relationships in the industry were was when I left Atten Bank and I set up Digital Cat. And I was just like, Oh my God, what am I doing? I've got a mortgage, I've got two kids, I've got a husband, I haven't got anywhere to run to if this goes wrong. There's just me, I don't have family. And I had a complete wobble. I was just like, I'm never going to be able to do this. And the day that I announced, over the day that somebody found out that I was leaving Atten Bank, I had two offers of consultancy work, one of which was from 27 Tech and one was from a tech startup. And they both just had heard on the grapevine that I was thinking of leaving and reached out straight away to go, please come and do some work for us. And it was just the most uplifting moment of reassurance and just confirmation that, yeah, those relationships and all that time you'd invested in people, people want to help. So use your network, spend, invest your time. And don't be frightened to ask for help. People really genuinely do want to help you. Yeah, if I think back over all of the tech startups I've worked at, there was only one that had a woman in a senior leadership position and it wasn't even CEO. I spent most of my career learning how to be one of the boys. (laughs) And growing up, I was always into sport and always preferred whiskey over vodka cruises anyway. Being Australian means that, again, a bit like being Geordie, wear your heart on your sleeve, you're just very straightforward and honest with people and that can cross a lot of bridges. But I have to admit, a lot of the women that I worked with just didn't feel that there was a place for them at the table anyway. There was the downward pressure of being treated differently and being made to feel like you couldn't put your foot out. But there was also something from the side of the women in that situation being like, can't really put myself out there. I'll never be one of the guys that never sit at the table. So why even bother? And I really like what she said about having a mentor, having somebody who can 
pick you up and encourage you and bolster you when you're feeling like maybe you don't have what it takes because actually we all do. <laughs> yeah, and talk about that a lot. And we've got lots of women's groups on LinkedIn and in residential property and we meet fairly often in like online virtual coffee kind of things. And we talk a lot about things like imposter syndrome and all of that and mental health and the struggle of managing career and family and dealing with the pressure of so many different things that you're trying to balance all of the time and how much responsibility you put on yourself. And then you have that conversation with a lot of men in the industry and it turns out they all have exactly the same things and they have imposter syndrome too and mental health challenges. And on the movement of people talking about those things now, it's just really powerful. And the more we talk about it and the more we share it, the more normalized it will become for everyone. And again, you're seeing companies who've invested really well in the setup of their diversity at board level downwards are more on the front foot having those conversations but we'll also talk about the culture of the company and how to make work a safe place to be yourself and express yourself and bring your whole self to work and that's something that Atom were just amazing at that be yourself at work and be your true self and we embrace every everything about everyone's culture and you're seeing more and more of that in the industry so if you do need to reach out to people go and have a look at some of those groups on LinkedIn there are lots of us who are having those conversations yeah I can't really talk on the topic because I'm not a woman but thanks to my wife I'm a born-again feminist because I do understand how hard it is for women and then she's had a very good career which she put on hold time a family and then going back into it various things so I see along with everything else that, that you guys have to deal with. The fact that I've just called you guys when you're quite clearly women. Guys to girls. I think guys is gender neutral now. <laughs> I'm going to stop digging a hole. And one of the most inspiring things that's happened actually the last couple of years, because I'm a football fan, so, you know, I'm going to say this, but for years and years, I used to sponsor one of Newcastle United women's team because they weren't funded by the club. And a lot of the girls were students, were working in a very early stage in their career, late teens, straight out of college. And if, if they didn't have individual sponsorship, they actually couldn't afford kids and travel and all of the things they needed to actually get through the season. And then obviously Newcastle was taken over and the new owners have brought them into the club and now are investing in them now. And at the same time that happened, we then had the Lionesses come through and have this amazing run and the Spanish feminine team are having an amazing run as well. And there's our little girls now, the role models that are out there, and the expectation that women can referee at a World Cup and girls can go and play at Wembley and we can do all of these amazing things. My mum runs a company and she's a non-executive bank and that's normal. It's definitely changing. It's really inspiring. Look, Maria, absolutely brilliant. Really nice to speak to you. And on the networking part, I think first saw about you on LinkedIn and Rebecca, I met through LinkedIn as well. So it really is network and getting out there that definitely helps. But yeah, this has been absolutely fantastic for who you are to give us this hour of your time to go through everything with us we really do appreciate it my pleasure thanks for joining us on the PropTech Growth Podcast to learn more you can find us on LinkedIn or email proptechpodcast at icloud.com see you next time